Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you, Alex, for your kind introduction. It's lovely for Margaret and me to be back at the Crescent. It's been a few years since we were last here, and special joy uh, to be here on your anniversary. And uh, 150 years, I must say, you're looking really good. And um, it's also a pleasure to have Jim, Jim Armstrong with us. We've enjoyed his fellowship over the weekend. It's also his 150th uh, anniversary. Uh, let's keep praying for Echoes International. They have various events around the country, still coming up, I think, aren't they, Jim? So let's pray on for the good work that Jim and his team are doing. Well, if you have a Bible with you, perhaps you'd turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just going to read the first nine verses as we think about the foundations of true hope. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, select, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. For you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, it was suggested to me we might look at this theme of hope being uh, the concluding weekend of the anniversary. We've been looking back, and of course, we are moving forward. But the big question is, what does the future hold? And I wonder if you'll agree with me that for many people in our country, but also around the world, we've moved into another period of deep-set uncertainty when we think about the future. Uh, for one thing, of course, we have all of the pandemic uncertainties still with us to some extent. Uh, we are uncertain whether there will be subsequent waves of this pandemic. We are uncertain about its impact on our economy or our mental well-being. There are many uncertainties surrounding it. And perhaps most significantly, of course, for many of us, death has always been a subject tucked away out of sight. But during the pandemic, during the past two years, death and dying have become much more familiar to us. It's out in the open. This also is a reason for many people to feel a degree of uncertainty, if not fear. And it seems that this present pandemic crisis has been added on top of a number of other things which cause uncertainty about the future. Uh, we've already heard a great deal, of course, in the last year or two about uh, 
climate catastrophe, what may happen uh, to our planet and to us because of climate change. Or we can add just in the last month or two, of course, with other headlines related to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, where again, language of, uh, of third world war or of nuclear disaster is back on the front pages of our newspaper. Well, all of these things, I think, add up to this mood of uncertainty. I have a book at home, it's called The Age of Anxiety. And uh, it was written before the pandemic, but the authors begin with some black humor. They say, if you're anxious about the future, you need to see a psychiatrist. If you're not anxious about the future, you definitely need to see a psychiatrist. Now, it seems to me that if there is one thing that the human heart struggles with, it is with this idea of the lack of hope. In fact, I think it's one of the saddest results of living a life outside of a relationship with the God who made us, our creator. Paul says we are without God and without hope. And we don't find that easy to live with. So if you're in that situation, you tend to go for all kinds of substitutes for true hope. Um, at its extreme end, that's very often uh, alcohol or drug abuse. I think for many people in our culture, uh, the substitute for real, help is a, for real hope is a kind of uh, what, what we might say self-indulgence. In other words, you maximize on your present experience as a way of avoiding thinking about ultimate issues. Eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we diet. In other words, this present moment is all I'm going to concentrate on. Now, social commentators tell us, in fact, that this lack of hope is quite serious, and particularly amongst young people. Um, this is the first generation in over a hundred years to have less high hopes than their parents. And if this analysis is true, we know how serious it is for the way in which we live. And here's the simple principle to remember, and that is our hopes and fears for the future substantially shape the present. I think we all know that to be true. When you have expectations about what you're going to do, that shapes your present motivation, your decision-making, your mood. So it's not just about emotion, it's actually also about where you're headed. So in that sense, hope is not simply about the future, hope is life itself. Well, now Peter knew that this was right at the heart of the Christian faith. And to be a Christian in Peter's time would have been a very demanding exercise. In fact, some people probably hesitated before they associated with the Christian community because it would be quite hazardous to be known as a Christian. So one of the central aims here in Peter's letter is to encourage his readers for this present moment by giving them hope for the future. Now, I've already implied it's like a feedback loop. If you have hope for the future, that will transform your present life. In fact, uh, Peter is, is really emphasizing hope frequently. He's an apostle of hope, and he realizes that hope is not, an in, uh, it's not a sedative. It is, in fact, an injection of adrenaline. It's a spur to action. It will help us to live as we should if we have true hope for the future. A life-changing certainty about our future.
That's how I'd like to, to define what we're thinking about, our hope. Well, what are the foundations for this life-changing certainty? And I want to ask you this morning whether you have this life-changing certainty of hope in your own life. Well, let's walk through the passage very quickly, and I just put up some bullet points of how Peter gives us these big foundations. First of all, hope is founded on God's purposes. And when Peter was writing to the Christians of his day, you'll notice he was writing to refugees. Uh, he describes them in verse 1, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these were exiles, that is, they were refugees. They were probably Christians who'd been thrown out of Rome because they didn't belong there. And they've landed up here in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, and they don't belong there either. They are exiles. They were a marginalized social class. And Peter uses this idea, in fact, to say, well, that's actually true of every person who's a follower of Jesus. Every Christian disciple is a migrant, is a sojourner. In other words, we're exiles on a journey. We're following the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter, 1 Peter, is a kind of traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims who are pressing ahead in what is a hazardous journey. I think that's worth remembering because sometimes we Christians forget this. We become rather uncertain about the challenge of living for Jesus. Uh, you might be a young Christian, for example, and you ask yourself sometimes, well, how am I possibly going to live the Christian life? How can I live in a new way? How can I follow Jesus? Is it possible? Or perhaps some of us here are a little older and maybe drawing to the end of our pilgrimage, and sometimes questions surface for such people as well. In other words, after all these years, will I finally make it to my heavenly home, to that destination? So it's important to see how he continues in verses 1 and 2. He talks about two gods elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. It's a fantastic description of God's purposes. Um, I don't know if you remember the late Stephen Hawking, a mathematician, very bright man, a cosmologist in Cambridge. And I remember listening to him on the radio before he died, and he said that the most common question that he received in his mailbag was, can you prove that God does not exist? And this is what he said. We are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of 100,000 million galaxies. So it is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. But contrast that with what we've just read in Peter's introduction to his letter to the sojourners, exiles like us. They're very different from, I think we have to say, Stephen Hawking's cynicism. Because Peter is underlining this fact that we are known to God from the beginning of eternity. We are chosen and loved by him. And this is really important, I think, for us to grasp because it's part of the foundation of who we are as Christians and the certainty and hope which we have. 
You'll see in verse 2, I've already quoted it, we've been chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, cleansed by the blood of Christ. So all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have been at work guaranteeing our membership of God's family and wrapping us into God's good purposes for now and for the eternity ahead. Well, for Christians, of course, this represents the real story, the big picture that we are part of God's eternal plan. Again, social commentaries, when they're talking about hope, say that the most important thing people need is a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, to see their lives not just here, but in, a, in the context of something bigger, something wider. Otherwise, they conclude that life's worth very little. And Peter is doing exactly this, as he underlines, we are part of God's big story, he says. We've been chosen before eternity. Now that transcends this, our life, and will run on to a future eternity. Hope is founded on God's big purposes. Well, then second, hope is based on a past event. You'll see it in verse 3. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So hope for the future is based on an event that has already happened, Peter says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, in English, when we talk about hope, we're usually uh, describing our expectations of what might happen. You say, well, I I look at the possibilities, I hope it will be like this. I hope if I do enough work, I will pass my examinations. I hope the weather's going to be good this afternoon. I hope it's going to be a good lunch. I hope the preacher will sit down quite soon. But there are no guarantees, are there? And we use hope in that rather limited sense. But Christian hope is radically different. Peter is saying this hope will be realized, it is absolutely certain, because it is based on an event which has already happened. Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, Peter knew this not just as a theological truth. It was something which had completely changed his own life. When Jesus died on the cross, of course, Peter's hopes died as well. But then when he met the risen Lord Jesus, it completely transformed his life. His life was turned around. He says, actually, in this verse, he has given us new birth. He realized that when Jesus died and then when Jesus rose again, God was making all things new. He will do that. He will complete everything to bring a unity and completion in Jesus Christ. And he begins with everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, everyone who is united to him, everyone who is given new birth. And that's the connection you see that Peter makes in verse 3. We've just looked at it. It's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, Peter talks about the new birth, and you, you know probably that Jesus also spoke about the new birth. And what they're saying in using this language is that to enter God's family, to have this wonderful hope for the future, is not something that you can manufacture yourself. I mean, it's not just being in a religious culture in Northern Ireland, or it's not just 
being from a Christian family. It's not even carrying out Christian duties. You can no more contribute to your new birth than you could have contributed to your physical birth. It is something that is done for you. You are born again. You become a new person. Well, how does that happen? Well, the New Testament writers tell us that if we want to know God, there is one big problem, and that is our alienation from him because of who we are, because of our sinfulness, because of our fundamental alienation from the God who made us. Our sin, the Bible says. So physically, we're alive, but spiritually, we are dead. In fact, the only way to come to know God, to be a member of his family, uh, to enjoy this incredible future, which Peter's just about to describe to us, is for that sinfulness, that rebellion, to be taken away and for us to be forgiven, to be given a new life. And that's possible, of course, because, as we've been singing, Jesus laid down his life to take away the punishment, the guilt that we have, to take away our sins. He has given us new birth. Uh, do you remember Paul, he was out there, he was campaigning against the church, he was persecuting Christians, actually he was persecuting Jesus himself, until he met Jesus, the risen Jesus, on the road to Damascus. And later on, he, he describes this new birth in lovely language. This is the New Living uh, uh, Testament. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. So I want to pause just for a moment to ask if you have experienced this new birth for yourself. It means turning away from our old way of life, our sinfulness, and turning towards the Lord Jesus, trusting him and seeking his forgiveness, asking for his new life. And it really is not complicated. I became a Christian at the age of five, and I didn't know a great deal of Christian theology. What I remember from that moment was I knew I needed to be forgiven. So I asked Jesus to forgive me, and to make me a new person. So I look back on that, it's only a few years ago, but I look back on that day as the moment when I was born again, when I was given a new birth. And of course, this new life, this new birth, is not just for now, it does extend on into eternity. And you can see the logic of what Peter has been saying. It's because I'm united to Jesus. Jesus died. And Jesus rose again, so that's the same for me. I'm going to live because I'm united to Jesus. Hope, we're given a new birth into hope uh, for, for an eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is built based on a past event. Here's the third thing. Hope celebrates a secure future. Because Peter goes on in the next two verses to say he has given us new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Uh, now, Margaret and I have reached the stage of life where our three children, in good humor, have begun to talk about who will get what when Margaret and I finally go from this mortal coil. And um, so one of them said, well, you know, the, Anna, she's, she likes books. She can have all the books. And um, our oldest daughter, well, she can have our little house. And our third daughter, 
well, she can look after the elderly parents. Yeah, it's hardly fair. But of course, that discussion of, of inheritance is, is not uncommon in families. I say again, it was done in good humor in our family. But the New Testament, when it talks about inheritance, is actually expressing the legal claim which a child has on the estate, on the property, even while the father is still alive. And so Peter is encouraging Christians, remember, remember where they are, these refugees, they're living in a very uncertain world. He says, remember, your future, your inheritance is absolutely secure. Your name is already on this full inheritance. It is waiting, he says in verse five, it is ready to be revealed. So the resurrection of Jesus, our new birth in him, means that God's salvation is now completed. It's perfect. It's kept in heaven for us by God himself. That is already a reality. It is a secure possession. It won't perish. It won't fade. It is an inheritance that is absolutely certain. You'll see what he describes in verse 9, the final verse we read. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So that, of course, is where it's all heading. As Christians, we are committed to live well here and now. I'll say that as we finish in just a minute. But we know where we're headed. We know we're part of this bigger story. And maybe you know C.S. Lewis's books and the Chronicles of Narnia. He uses a lovely, lovely illustration when he's talking about this future hope. He says, talking about this present moment, this is the beginning of the real story. So when you're born again, you have new birth, this is the beginning of a real story, he says. This present life is the cover and title page of the great story, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's a typical uh, illustration by Lewis to help us to see, well, this is just the beginning. This life is just the start of what we look forward to in the whole of eternity. Peter's second letter does the same. He says, lift up your eyes and look out for this new heaven and new earth. It's the home of righteousness. That's where you're headed, he says. And it won't spoil, he says here. Can't be defiled, can't be snatched away. And in that, in that new inheritance, that new home, that new heaven and new earth, there'll be no shred of arrogance or greed or bitterness or strife There'll be no more pain, no more death, no more tears. We read about it in the final book in the Bible. There'll be nothing to spoil our eventual home. So our hope is founded on God's purposes. It is based on a past event. It celebrates a secure future. And finally, he says, hope transforms the present. Do you remember the little definition that we gave just a short while ago? Hope is a life-changing certainty about our future. And in just a few verses, Peter shows us just a few glimpses of how having that future hope transforms this present moment. I just put them up quickly. First of all, he says you can experience powerful protection, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Um, so if you read the rest of this letter, I'm sure you, you, you know this letter, and Peter's a realist, isn't he? He knows that we're living in, facing all kinds of trials and difficulties. And he isn't attempting to escape the sordid present by promising some pie in the sky, some glorious future. He knows all about the struggles of Christian discipleship. So he reminds us that Christian hope, based on the resurrection of Jesus, helps us to face this present reality. In fact, he says, we're kept. You know, whatever is thrown against us, we are kept by God's power. Um, after all, it would be relatively little comfort to think, well, I've got this wonderful promise of a home in the future, if in the end, we didn't finally make it. Um, one commentator, Ed Clowney, says, not only is our inheritance kept for us, we are kept for our inheritance. And the word that Peter uses has a kind of military ring about it. We are shielded, he says. We are, we are kept under guard. So no matter what is thrown at us, no matter what enemies might be ranged against us, no matter how battered we might feel in experiencing pressures and griefs of all kinds, as he puts it, God says he will go on protecting us, caring for us until we finally see that salvation. Of course, it doesn't mean that um, all of the challenges now disappear. Uh, we don't automatically beam up to the mother ship when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. No, we're not immune from any of the sorrows of this world. We might even have more than others. God's purpose is not to bypass those difficulties, it is to transform them. And so he keeps us, he protects us, he carries us safely until finally we're in our eventual home. Second thing he mentions is hope transforms the present in terms of patient endurance. He says it in verse 7, you'll see it on the screen. These trials have come to you so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So it results in this patient endurance, in this maturing of our faith, just as gold is refined by fire, that happens to us gradually as we wait. We are being changed and we'll become more and more like Jesus, God willing, as we endure patiently as God protects us. And verse 7 continues, this will result in praise to God and also to glory. I think I, I take this verse to mean glory for faithful believers, everyone who's put their trust in Jesus, glory in the future. Well, there's one final thing that he also mentions, and that is joyful anticipation. You are shielded by God's power, he says, until the coming of the salvation, and then he continues in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. So Peter is describing a kind of steady joyfulness of people who know what's coming up. We know the future. And despite suffering grief of all kinds, we know that evil is not in charge. Evil has lost the initiative. This earth, this world, is not going to end up in the dust bowls of infinity. There is a new heaven and a new earth. There is a home. And so Peter says, in the light of that, we rejoice. In fact, he goes, verse 
8, he goes further, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Well, one day we will see Jesus. Unlike Peter, we have not yet seen Jesus. But he says, you can be filled with this inexpressible and glorious joy through living out your relationship with Jesus here and now. So I don't know whether you'll agree with me, but I think as I've grown older, this idea of having a, a joyful expectancy of what the future holds is really important for us to nurture. In fact, I quite like the illustration which Jim Packer uses in one of his books. He says that we should be like children who are getting ready for their holidays. We should be preparing in advance for that future day. And I like the illustration because I was brought up in London and uh, every August, my parents took us for one week of holiday uh, to a little town called Charmouth. It's on the south coast, the Dorset south coast, along the Jurassic coast. And my brother and I were fanatics for collecting fossils. I know it's sad, but um, that's what we used to do on our holidays. And I was so excited about that one week in August that I had my little backpack and my little geological hammer and everything else packed by Easter, months before we were even to go. And that's what Packer is saying, he says, uh, I quote, each day should find us like children looking forward to their holidays who get packed up and ready to go a long time in advance. Because this life is really a preparation for that new heavens and new earth, that eternal life. So there's no need to dodge the issue of death. We should not postpone our heavenly rejoicing, we should anticipate it, he says. Look at all the words he's using, greatly rejoice, inexpressible and glorious joy. So I come to a close. We've looked at these wonderful foundations for hope. And right at the beginning, I suggested that if these things are true in our lives, we've been born again, we have new birth through trusting Jesus, Jesus, having risen from the dead and our being united to him, carries us forward into an eternity. We have an inheritance that can't spoil or fade or be taken away. We have a new heaven and a new earth to look forward to. Well, this radically changes the way we live. We've just been looking at it. Hope transforms the present. And that's so important for us to remember. Again, it was C.S. Lewis, I think, who said that when you look at history, the Christians who did most for the present were precisely those who thought most of the next world. So we're not withdrawing in any way from this world. We're going to fulfill our responsibilities as God has given us until that future day. I finish with one example. And you'll remember this character. His name is James Galway. And uh, he's a hero of mine. Great musician. And he, he studies uh, as a flautist, began here in Belfast, I think. Am I right? He's um, from your part of the world. And a while ago, you may know, he was involved in a very serious road traffic accident. And in fact, it was so serious, he nearly lost his life. And he came out of that experience, and it forced him to face up to the way he was living his life now. And I think that's what I'm hinting at in 1 Peter. Here's the future. How do we live now? And so this, I'll quote him. Here, he, here it is. I think we've, yes, that's it. I decided from now on I would play every concert, cut every record, 
give every TV program as though it were my last. I have come to understand that it's never possible to guess what may happen next. And that the important thing is to make sure that every time I play my flute, my performance will be as near perfection and full of true music as God intended. And that I shall not be remembered for a shoddy performance. We don't know what our immediate future will look like, do we? We don't know what it will look like for Northern Ireland, for our nations, for our world. We certainly don't know what it will look like for us as individuals. There are all kinds of uncertainties, as I said right at the beginning. But we've seen it in a few sentences. Peter has introduced us to a living hope that truly can transform our present lives. We don't know what will happen James Galway says, I mean, this might be the last sermon I ever preach. It might be our last day. We do not know, as Jesus reminds us, Matthew tells us in chapters 24 and 25. So he urges us, Peter, to take this hope seriously. It's the most important thing in our lives. We didn't read it, but verse 13 of this chapter says, Therefore, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So be committed to live your life in the light of that future, Peter says. Don't be careless. Don't sink into the despair of our society. Don't be overwhelmed by fear when you think about the future, but live a life of hope. It's founded in God's good purposes for us and for his universe. It's founded on Jesus' resurrection new birth, and now a certainty of the future because Jesus rose from the dead. We're kept on our journey until eventually we arrive at our home. Let's be people of hope. Let's pray together. And I'd like us just to take a few moments of quiet um, because I wonder if again I could ask if all of us here have experienced what Peter calls the new birth. Um, I wonder if you've turned away from self-centeredness and, and sinful living and turned to Jesus for forgiveness. Whether you've accepted his gift of eternal life. And if you're in that situation, why not pray the words I'm just going to say now you've never taken that step dear Lord I know I'm a sinner and I realize I deserve judgment but I thank you that Jesus has taken my punishment on the cross and so I put my trust in him and I ask that you will make me a new person and please help me to live for you And Lord, we thank you that through this new birth you provide for us, not only now, but right into eternity. We ask you'll help us to live as people of hope and to tell this good news to others in a hopeless world. In Jesus' name, amen.